Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, we will learn about the foundational profession of the Jewish faith, even today known as the Shema. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. We are reminded each week as we gather together for our study, as we walk through the Israelites' journey, that the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to a very special passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The name of the lesson is The Lord is One, and this comes from Deuteronomy 6 and a well-known passage throughout the history of uh, the faith of Judaism called the Shema. And I'm very excited. It it was a privilege to read through and study through this passage of Scripture throughout this week. Uh, My prayer is that we will all have a deeper understanding of who God is and who He calls us to be as His disciples, walking faithfully with Jesus in our present day. But as always, for context, we like to show a map and remind us of where the Israelites are. And this map has not changed very much over the past few weeks. We are here in Deuteronomy, and uh, Moses is giving the, this law again to the Israelites right before they enter the Promised Land. So you have the, the Dead Sea and then the Jordan River, which runs north of that. And then east of that Jordan River is the land and the area of Moab and the plains of Moab, where Moses is giving this final, uh, what, Dale, Dale put it well, the, uh, the final pep talk to prepare God's people to take possession of the promised land. And that was Dale unlocking his inner Baptist with all the alliteration, which I appreciated. But that is where the Israelites are. And for context in the book of Deuteronomy itself, remember that uh, the book is, the Hebrew name for the book is, these are the words. These are the words. This is the the giving of God's word to the people right before they enter the the promised land. And the key theme is the covenant. And we find that in the ancient Near East, covenants existed a lot. God was not the first one to create this concept of a covenant, but God took the concept of a covenant and adapted it specifically for this relationship that he would share with his, his covenant chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. And uh, the purpose of the book then is to remind God's covenant people of his covenant promises and their covenant commitments before entering the promised land. It was almost a renewing of wedding vows, so to speak, for God's people after the first generation had been so unfaithful and had doubted God. Now the second and new generation was getting a chance to renew those vows. And I Also appreciated Dale sharing with us from the Ten Commandments, that second telling of the Ten Commandments from Deuteronomy chapter 5 last week. Note as we read through our verses today that the phrase, the Lord your God, is repeated 12 times. Anytime you're studying the Bible and you see something repeated, you should take note of it, even underline it or highlight it, because that tells you that the author is trying to emphasize something. In this case, Moses is trying to emphasize the importance and the centrality of God in the lives of the Israelites. And as it applies to us, God in the center of our lives as Christians today. So let's get into Deuteronomy 6. And the first few verses tell us the reason for the commands that are being given. Deuteronomy 6.1 
Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, that word here is going to be very important. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. So we find that the reason that these commands exist, and by the way, when Moses says, now this is the commandment singular, he is talking about the entirety of the law, which has just been summarized in the previous chapter with the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But we find that God had given his people these commandments so that they might obey him, that they might fear him, and that they might enjoy a long and fulfilling life in the land, which was the promised land. You see, guys, the ability of the Israelites to enjoy this fulfilling life that God had promised them was ultimately contingent upon their willingness to surrender and to submit to him and to obey his commandments. So God is saying, you can enjoy a long and blessed life and prosper, but you must obey me in order to do that. And that, in, that becomes the rub because we know that the Israelites did not always choose to obey God even when they began to take possession of the land and they went after other gods and they were disobedient. And, and we can see that that is a principle that is at play in our lives as well, that God would promise us not that everything would be easy, but that there's ultimate blessing that comes in following him and trusting him and obeying him. But that was the purpose for why these commands were given. So we move now to verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. And I would say that if memorizing, I'm going to encourage us uh, over these ne this next week to memorize verses 4 and 5. I'm putting a challenge out there to all of us because I believe that these are foundational verses for us as we follow Jesus Christ. But this is the foundational profession of the Israelites and of even the Jewish faith today. And it is known as the Shema. Our English Bibles read like this. Hear, there's that word hear again, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the Hebrew word for hear or listen, and that is hear or listen with the intent of obeying, by the way, is the Hebrew word Shema. So I would like for everyone to practice saying that word now so that you can go home or go out wherever you're going after this to say, hey, I learned some Hebrew. Do you want to hear it? So uh, let's say Shema together. Shema. And then for those online, let's say Shema. Shema. All right. Shema. And point, you know, point to your ears. Shema. Here. That's what the word means. In Hebrew, the, the whole text reads, Shema Yisrael Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. So that word Echad, okay, that, that's, that, that's, we'll get to that word in just a minute. You're going to have to warm up your vocal cords for Echad, so just get ready. Um, but, but this is the, the foundational statement of, 
of the Jewish faith even today. And, and devout Jews will say this at least twice a day. Now, uh, when, when Jews will say the word today, they don't say Yahweh out, out loud, outspoken. They instead say Adonai. So it's Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And the reason for that is they do not want to be in any danger of taking the Lord, the God's name in vain. So as a result, they do not say Yahweh in, in an effort to avoid even the possibility of taking God's name in vain. That's the practice of Jews today. But as we can see, this is foundational because this verse, small little verse that I want you to memorize, tells us a lot. It's small, but it tells us so much about who God is. And it tells us too that the very foundation for obeying and following comes and emanates from who God is. So God is the foundation and the reason for all that we are to be about. The, um, the word one, echad in Hebrew, and that's where I want you to say it now. Echad, let's say it. Echad. Okay, close enough. All right, those online, echad. Good job. So that, that word for one, and, and by the way, it, it, it is endearing to me to know that Moses says, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. That personal covenant relationship with Yahweh. Um, the Lord is one. So this word one has the idea of alone. The Lord is God alone, or the Lord the God is unique. Many uh, months ago when Dale was, was talking um, and teaching us, he asked the question of, um, you shall have no other gods before me from the Ten Commandments. Did that mean that God was supposed to be the first of many? Or did that mean that God was supposed to be number one, because he was the only one. And Dale very appropriately pointed us that it was God is the only one, that he is the only God. And that is what this word echad communicates. Uh, God is God alone. God is unique in all of his, uh, in all of who he is. The internal unity of God is wrapped up in this idea of oneness so that there is no one else who can contradict, no one else who can revoke, no one else who can challenge him because he is the only God. The Lord is one. This uh, idea shows up in many verses, including uh, prophetic books like Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 9, where Zechariah is writing about a future time when God will establish his kingdom on earth, uh, bringing in his Messiah to rule that kingdom. And we know that to be fulfilled in Jesus and Zechariah uh, speaks, and, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. It's the same word, echad. Now, interestingly, this word echad is used in a verse that we are well familiar with if we have attended any wedding at any point in our lives. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one echad, one flesh. So this oneness can actually be a composite oneness, where it's a, a bringing together of more than one into one. Do you see that connection? Which is where scholars, I think appropriately, theologically, begin opening the door to an understanding of the Trinity, from this verse in Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord is one, and he is one God, but we begin to see just as man and woman, as two people become one flesh, 
You can have a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, three persons who are still Echad, one God. So I'm not going to dive too much deeper into that aspect of God's oneness, but just to say that it is speaking about his unity, his uniqueness, and he is God alone. Scholar Daniel Block writes this about this Shema, this cry, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He writes, this is a cry of allegiance, an affirmation of covenant commitment in response to the question, who is the God of Israel? The language of the Shema is slogan-esque. I'm not sure if he made up that word, slogan-esque, but it's there. Uh, Rather than prosaic, Yahweh our God, Yahweh alone, or our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone. This was to be the distinguishing mark of the Israelite people. They are those and only those who claim Yahweh alone as their God. And as I said, uh, devout Jews will say the Shema at least twice a day, even today. So that is the foundational proclamation, this foundational profession that the Lord is one. And now as a result of God being one, here is the profound and uh, foundational duty of those that follow him to love the Lord your God. Let's look at verse five, which follows. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the natural response. If God is one and he is the only God and he is the faithful covenant God, the only response is to love him, is to surrender to him, is to submit to him with all that we are all of our heart. First of all, love, by the way, love is not an emotion, okay? Uh, We have in this romanticized modern culture, especially in America, if you've watched any movie about relationships, love um, has become an emotion. And and I get it. You know, I, I love my wife. I love my dog. I love chocolate ice cream. You know, not necessarily, I guess in that order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd start there. Um, but it, but it becomes just such a, a personal preference and an emotion when, when really biblically, what love is, is it is a volitional choice. It is a volitional commitment to obey. That is love. We're to love God with all of our heart. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew understanding of heart, we think of heart as an emotional seat. Um, but heart referred to the mind or the intellect. It referred to what we think, how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world. It should be in submission to God, the Lord, who is one. To love God with all of one's soul in the Old Testament meant someone that, that word nefesh, it means the entire being. Sometimes it refers to the entire life of a person, the total devotion and surrender. And then finally, to love the Lord, your God, with all of your might, is to that word means exceedingly or abundance. In fact, in verse three, when we read that the Israelites would multiply greatly, that's the same Hebrew word for might in verse five. The only person in the Old Testament who was ever described as fulfilling this commandment to love God with all that they are, using the same exact words of heart, soul, and might, was the righteous king Josiah when he was making reforms for the nation of Judah getting rid of all the idols and encouraging and challenging and leading the people to love God 
And the text says he loved, he was faithful to God with all of his heart, soul, and might. God wants us to keep his word and his truth ever before us so that we can practice that and obey and submit and surrender to him. It should be no surprise that these verses, which I I tried to do some quick checking uh, with Max, and I I told Ted back there, who's my historian friend, I wanted to do some fact checking. I believe that this is the first section of scripture where we read the importance of loving God with all of your heart, soul, and might. So it should be no surprise that this great commandment is what Jesus calls the greatest commandment and gets repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke by Jesus himself when he is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answers in Mark 12, 29 and 30. The most important is, is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall, Jesus believed in the Shema, guys. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so Jesus, um, he adds to that list mind and that's okay because Jesus can do that, because he's Jesus. The point is, he's emphasizing all that we are and all that we are about should be in loving submission to the rule of God, who is one. And we can begin to see very quickly as we move into some application now, why this is important for us today in our walk. And we'll see it from the text as we walk through the rest of it. And I'd like for us to to frame it this way, because the Lord is one, Because God's nature does not change. He is not a different God in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. He is still one. He is still the Lord. He is still the only one. Because the Lord is one, we must teach God's truth. We look continuing in the text in verses six and following these words. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Uh, Guys, this idea of teach, the Hebrew word means to engrave or to sharpen or to repeat. Uh, This is the idea that there is a discipleship responsibility that we have as parents to teach these truths about the one true God and the importance of loving and obeying him to our children and to the next generation. And we're to talk about them wherever we are, wherever we are going, whatever we are doing. Um, And I have found God has been very gracious over this past um, year, really, uh, maybe two years or so, I have found myself with lots of opportunities to be in the car with, um, with my daughter. And the Lord is doing a great work in her life. It's just such a, great, such a work of grace. And, and, and I, I, this verse comes to mind about talking about things as you go along the way. So the ancient Israelites would be walking wherever they would go, and they'd be talking about these things. And this day, we're, we're driving, and we have these discussions about life and the Lord and I'm reminded that that is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to talk about these truths along the way as we go. And I know that we can read a lot of disparaging statistics and studies about the younger generation that's coming up, now known as Gen Z. There's another one coming after that um, about how they are no longer engaged with, at least with Christianity. They're engaged in other spiritual practices, but some of them have no interest in uh, in things of the Lord. But But you know, the truth is, uh, it's not a hopeless cause. 
God is doing something great. We just don't always see it at the time. And so we are to be faithful in discipling the next generation. Discipleship is a proven practice and we need to practice it more as God gives us wisdom. And so uh, you may not be engaging in these conversations with your kids at this stage of life for wherever you are, but there are younger people that you can build into and you can be a mentor to, to point to Christ. Now we even find the importance of visible reminders of God's truth. And Moses writes about how these truths that we are to teach should be as being bound upon the the hand or the arm and uh, frontlet on the head. The the idea here even is practiced by, um, by some Jews today is to take a strap that's wrapped around the arm and to have a small box that is attached to the arm that actually has small copies of some verses of the Hebrew scriptures on them as a way to look down and have a visible reminder that I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and might. We also see that these boxes can also be attached. This is the the word frontlets, which in, in Hebrew here is totafot, which is also known in the Greek as phylacteries. But these phylacteries are these boxes that also contain small verses of Hebrew scripture in them. And it's almost to be a reminder that this is the word of God, which is to be constantly on my mind so that I might live it out and walk it out in obedience. And I think that we can look at this today as a very practical way for us to make sure that we are immersing ourselves and reminding ourselves of God's word, however that looks like. Maybe it's some scripture verses that you have on your wall, or some people will put cards on their mirror or have them in the car. And not, I'm not saying you look at them while you're driving, but, but they're there at the stoplight so that you can pick them up and that you can look at them and be reminded of what God says is true. Um, we have wonderful apps that we can get on our smartphones now that can allow us to listen to God's word as we're driving or as we're going, as we're mowing the grass, that This idea that we need these constant reminders of God's truth in our lives so that we can be the people that he calls us to be. Getting into the written word and allowing the living word through the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. We must teach God's truth. And sometimes we have to teach it, oftentimes, to ourselves first. Because the Lord is one, we must worship God only. Verses 10 through 15. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities. And this, by the way, uh, reads almost poetically. Watch what God will give. And and, uh, he will uh, bring you into this land with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of uh, all goods that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat, and are full. And that's, that's the key there, is that they're going to be settled into this very comfortable life that will lead them to complacency if they're not careful. When you are full, verse 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God. You shall fear him. You shall serve. And by his name, you shall swear You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Okay, do you get the point? 
that worshiping other gods is not something that God likes at all. And the reason is, is because he's the only one. The Lord your God is one. And because of that, we, even in our 21st century, must not worship other gods. And I can say that the lifestyle of the Israelites that they were going to inherit in this land was a very comfortable one to start. I mean, of course, they had to battle and they had to take possession, but, but eventually they would settle in and they would become very comfortable with the blessing that they would experience. And I wonder sometimes in the United States of America, not just in the 21st century, but for some time now, if we have become very comfortable and very complacent, uh, leading us to not take our walk with Jesus Christ very seriously in some aspects that we should. And I, I speak as someone who recognizes in my own life how I can set up and worship other gods of convenience and comfort that lead me to be complacent. So I speak from a point of conviction in my own life of that. We find that the, the, the point is to fear God, to be in awe of him, to serve God, and to swear by his name only from the text. We find even from last week, as Dale shared with us from Deuteronomy 5, 7, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Worship God alone. Worship him only because he is one. And I know when I speak of my own experience and my own struggles with these, idol, these idols is that when I am not placing God first in my heart, someone or something else it is having an illegitimate rule in, on the throne of my life. And prosperity and um, comfort can lead to a complacency, which, makes, uh, which is almost like a plague in our lives, just as it was with the Israelites uh, so we must make sure that we are worshiping God alone. Because the Lord is one, we must obey God only. And this flows right from worshiping God only. If we worship him only, we are to obey him only. Verses 16 through 19. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. That is a reference to um, Exodus chapter 17, which was the first water from the rock incident. This was when the people were complaining because they doubted God's ability to provide for them in the wilderness. And they said, we have no water. And God said to Moses, make sure to, to strike the rock and show them that I can provide water, even in the most unlikely circumstances from their perspective. And Mo Moses did that in Exodus 17 and God provided water. And, um, but we find that that was the people grumbling and testing God. We continue on in verse 17. Uh, you shall diligently keep the commandments. Uh, that, and in Hebrew, it's keeping you shall keep, literally. It's an intensive word. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Um, so we find the importance of obedience, which stems from worship God alone. We find that the people are to do and we are to do what is right, not in our eyes. I might have a perspective on something, but 
God says, do what is right in his eyes. We find what is right in God's eyes from his word, not from our experience primarily or not from our own feelings about something, but always checking our motives and our actions and our obedience against God's word. We also find that obedience to God is a demonstration of our love for God. As Jesus himself writes and speaks these words in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Because God is one, we must obey him only. And finally, because God is one, we must remember God's acts and his words, which takes us back to God's truth at the beginning where we started. These final verses read, when your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, and this is where God's acts come in, God's faithful acts of redemption in the past. Verse 21, and you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give uh, us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And now we get verse 24, God's words. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. Isn't that good to know that fearing God and obeying his commandments is for the good of his people? not just some of the time, but always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day and that we will be righteous. it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Again, that singular word commandment summarizing the Mosaic, uh, the 10 commandments and the law. So uh, because God is one, we are to remember his acts and his words. As we talk about what God has done in our lives and even bringing us uh, from death to life in Jesus Christ. We are to share about that and how God has graciously worked in our own lives and our own salvation story. Just as the Israelites were to say, he brought us from salvation in a land of slavery. We say he brought us from salvation in a land of slavery to sin before we knew Jesus Christ as savior. God's deliverance, his great acts of redemption. And then we are to point people back, including ourselves, to God's words and be reminded of his truth. That's why we need to be inundating ourselves in the scriptures so that we might understand God's heart and mind even more. Um, as we conclude, guys, I, I want us to think about why this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema, is, is significant and uh, this actually comes to us from a, uh, a Hebrew understanding that, that evolved over time about this verse and its importance. So uh, this is not something that is uh, originally included in the biblical text, but as the Jewish people have learned the importance of this Shema, hear, O, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, if, you re- if you look in most uh, Hebrew manuscripts or Hebrew um, prints of the Bible, 
you find something interesting, and this is a little hard to explain. I'm going to do my best. Um, but Hebrew reads left to right. Sorry, right to left. This is right to left, right? You do this thing with your L? Okay, right to left. So the number four over on the right, that's where you start. That's the Hebrew word Shema. It looks like kind of a, like a W, and then um, you've got another, I don't even know how to describe it, and then a backwards Y, all right? But can you see even from there that that backwards Y character, which is Ayin in, in the Hebrew uh, alphabet, that it's larger? See, it's a little larger than the, pre- the preceding two um, characters, our, our letters. You get to the end all the way on the left, that's Echad. Again, let's say that word, Echad, okay. That's the word for one. And then do you see that, that character at the very end there on the left? It, it looks kind of like a, an upside down L, turned backwards, right? That's, that's Dalit, it's like the D sound. What, uh, what Jews have come to understand about this Shema and the importance of it is that it serves a functional purpose in their lives and it should remind us of a purpose in our lives too. So what you get is you get this character and this character and they're often printed in larger font size than the others. So it makes you, draws your attention. You say, well, what does that mean? And when you bring these two words together, it creates a new Hebrew word. That Hebrew word is aid or aid, which means witness. So the devout Jews understood that when you remember who God is, as God is one, and you are, as a result of that, loving him with all that you are, you are serving as a witness to the world about that God who is one. And I'm reminded of just how important that is in our lives as Christians, as we seek to follow Jesus Christ, is that when we are demonstrating a surrender to God who is one through his son, Jesus Christ, we are acting as witnesses in a world that desperately needs to hear that the Messiah is Jesus and that faith in him leads to salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's an incredible invitation. And it reminds me of Jesus' own words in John chapter 10, which show that Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of the Shema. Let's read these verses as we close. I'll read them out loud here. My sheep hear my voice. Does that word hear show up somewhere else in the Shema? Hear, O Israel. And I know them and they follow me. That is the idea of us placing our faith in Jesus and looking to him for complete surrender by grace. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And here's the conclusion. I and the father are one. I see a beautiful connection there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then Jesus, as my sheep, hear my voice. I and the Father are one. So just as the Israelites look to surrender to God, we all are to look to Jesus in faithful surrender each and every day because he is full of grace and truth. Grace to lead us to salvation and truth to point us in the direction of how we are to be, but also grace to provide the forgiveness for when we fall short because we will, but God continues to want to use us as his witnesses in the world. And we can learn these incredible truths just by looking even at one verse, but certainly at the all of scripture.
So because the Lord is one, we must teach God's truth. We must worship God only. We must obey God only. And we must remember God's acts and his words. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again next week for the next installment of our journey with the Israelites through the wilderness. Until then, God bless and have a great week.